Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. The topic we're going to investigate today is the potential for another lost decade for Australia. On the agenda, uh, firstly, we're going to look at why the Australian economy is set to boom in 2022. Uh, next, we'll look at the likely outcome for the economy after the stimulus has run out. Then we'll discuss why the 2010s were the worst decade for Australian living standards on record. And lastly, we'll look at why the 2020s is looking like it's going to be a repeat. So my name's Sam Kerr, and I'm the Senior Advisor at Nucleus Wealth, and I'll be the host of the show for today. Uh, we also have Leith Van Onselen, uh, the Chief Economist at Nucleus Wealth. Uh, Leith, how are you going today? Good, thanks, Sam, and hello, everybody. Thanks for being here. Um, so, yeah, um, just a quick housekeeping message um, before we get started. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell to be notified when we go live or we have a new episode that you can watch. Alternatively, follow us on your preferred podcast platform. Uh, our show is available on all the majors. And for those of you listening live today, feel free to drop your questions in the YouTube live stream chat and we'll do our best to answer them along, along the way during the show. So now we've got that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, we'll get, in, uh, get into things. So, Leith, I'll hand it over to you to get us started. Yeah, thanks very much, Sam. Now, um, I've just published a report that's gone up on macrobusiness.com.au, uh, which basically um, is a short and long-term overview of the Australian economy. And uh, so what I've done this time, usually when I do these reports, it's the usual, I usually do a Christmas special report every year. Uh, usually I'll look at what's coming up for the Australian economy or the Australian property market or some kind of theme like that. But but this year I decided to take a bit of a different tune because in the wake of the pandemic and decided to sort of step back and take a bit of a longer term view of the Australian economy as well as obviously looking at, looking at what's going to happen next year. And uh, in doing so, I've sort of come to this thesis that the Australian economy is going to likely boom in the short term, but then over the longer term, i.e. the rest of the decade, we're very likely to follow a similar pattern to what happened last decade in that effectively the economy starts to stagnate in a per person sense, in a per capita sense. And that, uh, you know, we're, we're effectively facing this, uh, what we dubbed last decade as a lost decade, uh, this decade. So effectively a repeat of what happened last decade, whereby living standards uh, tread water and that we effectively end up, you know, I, I'm, I'm foreseeing that at the end of this decade, we're, we're likely to look back and go, oh, gee, that was another dud. Um, but anyway, I'll get I'll get to that stuff later on. I think, uh, first of all, um, I think it's probably best just to look at the short term and look, look at 2022 and how it's shaping up. And um, Sam, if you can just bring up the first slide, uh, the, the, the first two charts. Um, what I've got here is effectively a summary of why I think 2022 is going to be a short-term boom for the Australian economy and effectively it gets down to one thing uh, and one thing only, and that's the massive stimulus the Australian economy received um, because of the pandemic. So effectively, we had about $200 billion of federal stimulus pumped into the economy uh, alongside other stimulus, such as the, uh, the early release of superannuation and obviously state government measures. And what this effectively did is after a long period of stagnation, it actually led to a big boom in household disposable income, which is shown for those who are watching um, on the on the left slide with, with, with the red 
the red line. So what this chart shows for those who are listening um, via audio is I put this, I put a chart together which which tracks household income versus household expenditure. And what it shows is that household income has, has boomed at the same time as household expenditure has crashed. And the reason for that is, you know, obvious. Household income has boomed because of stimulus. So that's things like job seeker, um, the 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 job um, so the job job keeper, which is about ninety billion dollars, uh, which effectively was paid to employers, but also was received by a lot of it was received by employees. Uh, obviously, the the job seeker um, boost that was received, uh, early release of superannuation, and all these other measures. So household income boomed, but at the same time, because of all the lockdowns. So we had obviously a big lockdown in uh, in, in Victoria last year um, of about four months. And then this year we've had uh, New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT lockdown for months on end. Uh, because of these lockdowns and restrictions, household expenditure shrunk. So we had this, uh, this strange situation where income went up, expenditure went down. And what that inevitably led to was a massive rise in household savings. Um, so over the six quarters since the pandemic began, Australian households have accumulated $327 billion of savings. So that's over the first six quarters uh, since the pandemic began up until the September quarter. Uh, This all comes from the national accounts, which were released uh, earlier this month. And what that is, that $327 billion compares to $119 billion that was saved in the six quarters leading up to the pandemic. So effectively, households not being able to spend and having received all this stimulus have built up this massive war chest of savings. And what that means for next year is that households are cashed up and they're in this situation where, you know, not, not having been able to spend for so long, they're likely to end up boosting their, their consumption. And the reason why this is important is that household consumption makes up 55% of, uh, of Australia's economic growth on, in a typical quarter. So where household consumption goes, usually the economy follows. So... Um, with this huge amount of savings and obviously people not being able to spend, we're likely to see all this, uh, see, see households ramp up their spending next year. And that's great for the short, in the short term for the Australian economy. Um, now, Sam, if we can skip to the next slide. So, Leith, just just quickly there. Sorry. Uh, so, property prices over the last year, year and year and a half, they've really um, accelerated right. a lot. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, these household savings, that's been a big contributing factor? Yeah, definitely. It's certainly not the biggest contributor. The biggest contributor is obviously the the crashing of mortgage rates. So since the pandemic began, the Reserve Bank has cut interest rates quite aggressively, and that led to mortgage rates falling uh, through the floor. And that obviously brought forward, uh, you know, stimulated a lot of house buying and uh, more demand for housing and, you know, as well as other assets as well, but particularly housing. And um, and that led to obviously a 22% rise. I think we'll, we're, we're going to chalk up, uh, chalk up this year, a 22% rise in house prices. Um, but certainly the big rise in saving has created another tailwind. So that's, it is definitely a factor. It's obviously not the main factor. Interest rates are the main factor, but it's definitely one of the big drivers. Contributing, um, yeah. Yeah, obviously, you know, when, when, when households chuck up $320-odd billion of saving, not all of that's going to be spent on at Harvey Norman or on holidays, um, you know, or at the pub. Uh, some of that's going to inevitably um, mean that people will, will funnel some of that into housing. And it does also mean that, uh, for example, people could have saved up a, a deposit quicker. Um, so there were, there were cases last year when, when, when people got access to their superannuation early that people 
uh, that young people in particular rated the super for a housing deposit and then leveraged up into the housing market. So certainly uh, it's definitely a positive factor and it would have contributed for sure. Uh, I just don't think it, it's the main driver. The main driver would be the cost of credit. And uh, sure. but but they're but they're mutually, you know, uh, reinforcing. Um, so certainly, uh, but but that being said, I think uh, the outlook for the housing market next year is pretty weak, um, just because we had a twenty-two percent run up, and it looks like Melbourne and Sydney now turning. Um, and and I think just uh, obviously the we are seeing some tightening on fixed mortgage rates, and as well as the prudential regulator APRA is now starting to tighten up credit a bit. So it uh, looks like that boom is going to peter out next year, but. For the economy as a whole, which is more than obviously the housing market, um, the, the household consumption is likely to boom. So that's a massive tailwind for the economy. Um, on the on this second slide here, I've got two more charts. Which this a little bit like the household savings for housing. Uh, this is a secondary factor, but it's also uh, likely to be pretty bullish for the economy next year. Twenty twenty two shaping up for has been a big construction year for the economy. And the reason for that is twofold. Uh, again, it gets back to stimulus. Um, viewers have probably heard of the home builder stimulus. So uh, late last year and into early this year, the federal government basically gave big subsidies for people who built new house, houses. And what that's done is it's led to a massive increase in dwelling approvals. And although home builder ended in March, um, it takes typically takes quite a long time for houses to, to first get approved then to get constructed and finished. And what's what's happened because of the cost of raw materials and there's labour shortages and all that sort of thing, um, the construction profile for Australian housing has actually been pushed back a bit. And what that means is that all this home builder stimulus that that was given out is, is likely to actually hit the Australian economy mostly next year because a whole bunch of homes have been approved, but they're yet to be built. And they're going to be constructed you know, uh, from now into next year, and we're likely to see very home, uh, very strong home building construction next year, which will obviously boost jobs and growth, etc. At the same time, uh, both state and federal governments are undertaking a very big uh, infrastructure build. So, for those who've got the slides in front of them, on the right hand side, this uh, there's a chart from Deloitte Access Economics, and and they show that the uh, forecast. Um, infrastructure uh, construction is, is likely to be at record levels in 2022. So all these factors combined, um, mostly household consumption, but also obviously construction, uh, suggest that 2022 is going to be a really strong year for the Australian economy. Um, so in the short term, everything's looking peachy. Uh, it should mean unemployment falls and it should mean, um, obviously, you know, the, the, the labour market remains really strong. And it's going to look 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 fantastic, but my concern is what happens after that. Uh, what happens after the stimulus, you know, runs its course, um, and and my concern is that the Australian economy will basically fall into a heap like it did last decade, and that will effectively tread water for the rest of the decade, at least on a per person level. Uh, and before I go into the, I guess the 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 decade outlook, it's it's always good to look at what happened last decade. And I can see clear parallels. So if we, uh, if you don't mind uh, going to the next chart, um, I've got these. I've got two charts here: Australia's per capita GDP growth rate and Australia's per capita household disposable income growth rate. Um, which basically, over the 2010s decade, and I compare that to the previous five decades before that. So basically, I've put them in uh, 
decade averages from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. And what this shows is that the 2010s, so 2000 to 2010, were the worst decade for individual living standards, per capita living standards uh, on record, because the records only went back to 19, uh, the 1960s. And uh, the decade average per capita GDP growth and the decade average per capita household disposal income growth was worse than any of the five decades before it. So what this effectively shows you is that we had an economy where on the surface it looked all right, because Australia ran the, the one of the highest population growth um, immigration programs in the developed world. So, so the, the overall economic pie was growing, but everyone's slice of that pie basically grew at a very poor rate. And effectively living standards, at least when you measure it on these narrow, um, you know, by these narrow economic indicators, uh, stagnated by and large over the decade. And it was a very poor decade for Australia. And, uh, and effectively Australia's economic performance was papered over by, by, uh, by the aggregate uh, growth growing at a decent rate because we had so much population growth through immigration. And uh, what I'm afraid, I'm afraid this is going to happen. This is likely to happen again. And there's, and there's uh, if we switch to the next chart, Sam, and there's a, the reason for that is there's, according to the Australian Treasury, and this is, you know, pretty orthodox, there's effectively three drivers of the Australian economy when you look at it from a top-down level. And Treasury calls it the three Ps. The three Ps stand for productivity, participation, and population growth. So if you focus on those P three Ps, the most important one, without a doubt, is productivity growth. And the reason for that is, is um, productivity is basically the long-term driver of living standards for any economy. And, and what productivity growth measures is effectively how much you get from a given set of resources. So, uh, yeah, for example, given a, a, a certain number of people, a number of workers, and a certain capital stock and a certain stock of you know land and resources, et cetera, how much output do you get from that? And if you can increase your output from the same level of inputs, that, that means your productivity's gone up. It means you're getting more for the more for less or more for the same. Um, and unfortunately, Australia's productivity growth last decade has been was really poor. Uh, and and you know, to, to be fair, it was poor across the world. It wasn't just in Australia. But the, there isn't any reason to think that productivity is going to suddenly turn around. And um, sorry, you, you, you better. Yeah. So, so Leith, this this productivity issue, um, low productivity, is this uh, is this like a cultural thing, or is there have we sort of reached a ceiling where we can't really get any more productive, or what what do you think is the reason for that? Yeah. Look, I, I think we, we we had a fantastic productivity boom in the nineties. Um, and nineties into the two, into the uh, earlier two thousands, um, because we had this sort of big bang change from the introduction of the internet. So we had this big technological revolution that that basically turbo, turbocharged productivity growth across the globe. Um, now, look, it's impossible to say we we, we could get another big bang uh, productivity, um, you know, reform that that comes out of nowhere because you know it's impossible to foresee that. Um, if something like the internet's going to come around again, it could, we don't know. But um, since then, effectively across the developed world, productivity has stagnated. 
because it, it's um, effectively, uh, I guess, economies the worldwide. We don't really know how to boost it, and and and, and to try and squeeze more lemon lemon out of the economy is actually quite hard, and it requires very hard decisions. Like for example, in Australia, uh, tax reform. Uh, in, in 2008, the Henry um, the Henry Tax Review was handed down with a uh, with a design blueprint to basically reform the entire tax system. Well, that was put on the back burner. Since then, we've had multiple other tax tax reform papers that all say similar things. But these sorts of reforms never happen because they're, they're politically difficult. And because of that, you know, for example, productivity stagnates. Um, it's all all the easy productivity reforms that that. Um, uh, have, you know, have sort of already been taken by by economies by and large, and and to try and squeeze more juice out of lemon requires tough decisions, which which are very difficult to do politically. Uh, and because of that, we're basically stuck in this uh, you know the this lower productivity economy um, un, until another big bang reform comes out, like say the internet, which could happen. It could happen next year. We don't know, but it might. But we but we might not get another one of those again. Or, or at least not for decades. So in order to squeeze out more productivity, we effectively need tough decisions to be made. And unfortunately, political systems across the globe, um, if anything, have become less capable of making these decisions because um, effectively politicians these days are run by lobbyists and lobbying groups. And we've seen that in the US, the UK, uh, you know, Canada, Australia, it doesn't matter where you go. It seems the quality of politics and decision-making has gone down because, um, you know, lobbyists now rule the roost and uh so because of that we're in this sort of productivity slump because no hard decisions are ever you know willing to be uh, willing to be made and in australia i point to tax reform as the main one it's the most obvious um because you know the henry tax review in 2008 had a lot of great ideas and you know from a productivity perspective would have made a huge difference but they're also politically very difficult so as a result you know we all we, we end up having these endless reviews on everything, but nothing ever happens. And then every time it becomes an issue, the politicians undertake another review because it gives the perception that they're 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 doing something. But then when the recommenda recommendations come down, they ignore them. <laughs> so that's basically the the sort of treadmill of the Australian economy is on. I, I hope that answers the question at least uh, to a reasonable Yeah, amount. yeah. But the yeah, project is very difficult. It's very difficult okay. and requires. Um, Sort of short-term pain for long-term gain, and because of that, uh, you know, politicians always put it on the back burner. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And it looks like productivity is actually trending down. Um, and let's let's say there's no sort of major tax reforms, and it's just business as usual. Do you think that's going to continue going down, or are we just sort of going to sort of flatline? And yeah. Uh, well, uh, I, I, it, it, yeah, it's hard to say. I certainly can't see it rebounding. Uh, so whether whether or not it keeps getting worse is uh, is hard to know, but it could just stay at this sort of really low level productivity growth for for a long time. And I can't see any reason why it would suddenly pick up unless you get a big 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 bang reform like a new internet or something. Mm -hmm. um, so based on that, the the first P of the three uh, Treasury three P's uh, framework is actually pretty shot and unlikely to provide much growth. Um, the the second P is also important. Uh, and not, not as important as productivity or, or not as uh, good at growth driver as productivity. But um, the second P is participation. So what that is, that, that's the labour force participation rate or how many, uh, what, what proportion of your workforce is in work. And 
The problem for this one is that Australia's participation rate, at least when you measure it by the employment to population ratio, so what percentage of the uh, population is in, in employment, is currently at its highest level on record. So it's already gone up in the last uh, last decade. So what the, the, the problem with that is when you've already increased your participation rate and it's already at a really high level, there probably isn't a lot of headroom to increase it a lot more. Um, so what this sort of tells you is that if productivity shot and we probably can't increase participation much, it means that the economy is once again going to become you know, hyper-reliant on mere population growth through immigration um, because that, that's pretty much the only one of the three Ps that's going to give you growth. And the problem with this is that's great when you look at the, the Australian economy as a, as a pie, right? So adding more people, more inputs in people means that the pie will grow. You'll get more outputs. But, it, but that's not what should be important. What, what should be important is everyone's slice of the pie. So there's no point just merely bringing people into Australia to juice growth and to make Australia's GDP growth look better. If everyone's share of that GDP growth doesn't go up. And that's effectively the situation we found ourselves in last decade where we, we, we ran one of the biggest immigration programs in the world. We grew Australia's population um, you know, very rapidly. And, but, but per capita outcomes are really poor. And they're in fact worse than what was shown in those previous two charts when you factor in all the things that aren't counted in GDP or uh, household disposable income. Like, for example, people used to live in houses, now they've been forced to live in apartments. Well, that, that there is a dilution in one's quality of life. There's no doubt about, there's no doubt about that. Um, or, you know, obviously traffic congestion or environmental degradation, uh, all, all these sorts of things, or having water shortages like Sydney had a few years ago. Um, all these sorts of things are, aren't picked up in the economic statistics. And obviously, if you keep growing the population so quickly, infrastructure will lag behind. Um, there'll be less room for people to live in houses, so they'll be forced to live in apartments. Uh, the, the, the environment will get more degraded because you've got more people consuming and obviously chewing up uh, land, et cetera, and resources. So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit afraid that Australia is just going to go back to the same broken economic model that we, that we ran last decade, and we're going to get exactly the same results, a very, very poor, um, you know, poor economic uh, outcomes per, on, on an in individual basis. Uh, living standards will basically flatline or fall. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's basically the, the, the nub of the report. Um, and if you don't mind, just go to the next chart, uh, Sam. Uh, I've actually put a chart in here from the, uh, from the intergenerational report, which was released earlier this year. And, and what that is, that's basically released every five years by the Australian Treasury. And it's effectively Australia's population policy. And basically the intergenerational report uh, has tipped that Australia's, uh, Australia will, will return to uh, 235,000 uh, net overseas migration every year, basically into forever. Um, and the, inter the intergenerational report also predicted that Australia's population is going to grow by 13.1 million people uh, over the next 40 years um, to nearly 40 million people. So to put that into perspective, that's the equivalent of adding a Sydney, Melbourne and a Brisbane to Australia's existing population. So imagine looking at Australia now, cutting out Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and adding that again into Australia's population. Now, that, that is a huge amount of people. That's a huge amount of houses that need to be built. That's a huge amount of uh, infrastructure. And it's hard to believe that, um, that Australia is going to actually build enough infrastructure for all those people and actually 
build, um, you know, uh, do all the things that we need to do to keep everyone basically the same living standards that they have now. Um, especially given almost everyone would agree that the last 20 years in Australia, uh, infrastructure fell behind. Um, you know, if you lived in Melbourne and Sydney, your living standards probably went down. Uh, and effectively, the, the intergenerational report predicts that Australia's population growth um, will double again what happened between 2020 and 2020, uh, sorry, 20, 2000 and 2020. So between those, the last 20 years up to COVID, Australia added six and a half million people. Well, effectively, we're going to do that again twice in the next 40 years. So if you thought the last 20 years were, were, was crazy, we're going to have that again twice, according to this, to, according to the federal government. And, you know, we're going to see Melbourne's population grow from 3.3 million people at the turn of the century to probably close to 8 million people in, you know, in, in, in a relatively short period of time. And that's, um, that is a massive upheaval for, for everybody, you know, um, yeah, massive growth. E even by the end of this decade, the federal government predicts we're going to have about 6 million people in Melbourne. So effectively Melbourne's population would have almost doubled in just 30 years, according to the government's pro projections. And Sydney's, you know, similar, but not, not quite as bad because they would be bigger to start with. Uh, and this is going to happen across Australia's cities, but mostly in Sydney and Melbourne. So, um, you know, and if you don't mind going to the next chart, Sam, I just want to uh, draw some more parallels with last decade. The, the interesting thing about uh, the, the 2010s was pretty much all the growth in per capita GDP and disposable income came in the first two years. That's because we had a huge commodity, commodity boom. Um, which ran to 2012. And what that did was that uh, we had a huge amount of mining investment that took place, which obviously boosted GDP. We also had um, commodity prices hit their, their highest ever level in 2012, and that you know, increased national income. And effectively, we're at a very similar place again, except instead of having a big mining investment boom, we've got a stimulus boom going on, which is going to run next year, but then fade, just like the mining investment boom faded. At the same time, uh, the terms of trade has just peaked at the same level it was in 2012 when it peaked last time and it started to come off. So I can see direct parallels to last decade in that the first two years of, of this decade, just like they were last decade, are looking quite good. But then I can see the parallels being exactly the same in that the next eight years were likely to stagnate, just like we did last decade, um, because the terms of trade are going to crash, which will, which will reduce national income as well as um, obviously the stimulus is going to fade. So the long and short of it is that we're, um, unfortunately, I think we're just going to repeat the same kind of, you know, stillborn Australian economy as we had last decade, where the pie keeps growing because we're more people, but the same at the same time as these other livability indicators um keep getting worse so you know australia's got itself in a real trap i think at the moment and um you know it, it's very hard to see it's very hard for people to see it because because the here and now is okay we're all coming out of lockdowns um you know obviously the omicron virus uh, uh the the omicron strain could you know upturn everything next year but as it stands here and now um you know the people are kind of feeling more you know, they've got more freedom a lot, a lot of people got cash in their cash in their pockets because of all the stimulus and everything else, and they haven't been spending. So right now, you know, the here and now is probably okay. And um, but it's sometimes good to step back 
and look at what's 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 coming up in the future. And most people don't do it, and most economists don't do it because they're always worried about the here and now, and they're always worried about what's going to happen next quarter. Uh, you know, the next quarter, the, the next quarter's national accounts, not you know what's going to happen in the next decade. And and that's effectively what this report has attempted to do. It's attempted to look back and say, look, yeah, okay, the here and now is fine. Let's step back a bit. Let's look at what happened last decade, and let's see if we're going to, you know, if we're going to repeat it this decade. And I think we will, unfortunately, unless you know, unless we get a change of policy, which there isn't, there, there doesn't seem to be any um, appetite um, at either level. And I think uh, whether Labor gets in or Lib or the coalition gets re-elected, um, we're probably looking at a similar set of circumstances. So that's so basically least, that in a nutshell. Yeah. So you're saying. Uh, Australia is predominantly out of the three P's, you know, predominantly using the, the population growth uh, to, to squeeze out uh, more GDP, but that's sort of coming at the cost of the dilution of the GDP per capita. Yeah. Uh, are there are there any other countries, you know, developed countries uh, that that are doing this better than us? And, uh, and what does that look like? Yeah, certainly. Look, look, there, there are um, other countries that don't follow this this model, and I'd, I'd point to places like Germany and Scandinavia, etc. In, in in Europe, now those economies don't run this these big population policy um, uh, models. So, for example, I'll, I'll give you a classic example: uh, Sweden in 1960 had eight million people; Australia had ten million people. Sweden today is about ten point two million people, and Australia has close to twenty six million people. So. Effectively, Sweden and Australia weren't that different in size and population terms in 1960. Um, Sweden's population is growing by about 25%. Australia's growing by over 150%. And now I'm certainly not saying Australia should have 12 million people. Like we're a big continent. We, we, we did need more people. There's no doubt about that. But it does sort of tell you that, um, and it's the same across all the Scandinavian native countries. They all grew by about 25% from 1960 to now. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Denmark, uh, Norway, uh, Sweden, uh, Finland, they're all growing by about the same amount. And, um, you know, effectively, those countries, instead of relying on just importing people, building houses for them, selling coffees to them, um, you know, all these people servicing industries, they're actually trying to uh, be clever economies and, and do things differently. And, you know, um, have very good education attainment. Uh, they also have, you know, strong manufacturing bases. They, they have a high skill, high value add economies. Whereas Australia, we don't really have uh, high value add economies. We dig things up and we sell them because um, we're obviously naturally rich. And on top of that, we're pretty much a people servicing uh, industry. So, you know, we're, we're all run on services, um, which, you know, to a degree is fine. You need those things. But, you know, should an economy like Melbourne really be reliant on just cafes and building houses? That's effectively what the Melbourne economy is. Um, you know, we don't really have an industrial base here anymore. Australia's got the weakest manufacturing se sector or the lowest share of manufacturing in its economy out of the whole developed world. And, you know, we've, we've basically let the manufacturing sector die. And instead, we're just running this, uh, this sort of import people, build houses for them, sell coffees to them and, and load up on debt. And that's the whole Australian model. And I think we'd be a lot better if we actually tried to, you know, emulate the Scandinavians. Um, and, and, you know, look, uh, the, the, there is another aspect to this, which I didn't mention. Um, it actually makes less sense for a country like Australia to import people than it does for other countries. The reason being is most of our export, uh, most of our export income or our earnings from overseas comes from selling our fixed mineral endowment. So think iron ore, coal, gas, et cetera. 
because um, we're very mineral, uh, yeah, we have a high uh, mineral wealth compared to other nations. So the stupidity of it is that if you say double Australia's population, well, you're basically halving Australia's mineral wealth per capita because a fixed amount of mineral wealth is spread amongst more people. So everyone's slice of the mineral pie gets diluted. So it makes even less um, sense for a country like Australia to, to, to run a high population policy. We'd arguably already be richer if we had 20 million people than 26. And we'll be richer if we were 26 million people rather than 40 million people. Um, so, you know, and, and another problem with that is, unfortunately, because we ignored the Henry Tax Review, uh, we don't tax our, our, our resource wealth properly as well. So we don't even get all the benefit of the resource wealth because a lot of the profits fly overseas because all our miners are, you know, predominantly foreign owned. Whereas in Norway, for example, uh, their, their, their gas company, so Norway's uh, resource rich, um, their gas companies are publicly owned, the profits stay home, uh, stay, um, you know, uh, with the Nor Norwegian people. They've set up a huge sovereign wealth fund, which is worth a couple hundred thousand US per citizen. Um, the Henry Tax Review wanted us to introduce a mining super profits tax and put it, uh, you know, develop a sovereign wealth fund. We didn't do it. And as a result, we're sort of, um, you know, we, we don't extract enough wealth for Australians out of the minerals we've got. But then we also dilute whatever we get by more people, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'd love to see, um, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, I'd love to see us copy the Scandinavian model rather than uh, rather than the, the, the Ponzi model, which is what I call it, the, the sort of rat wheel economy where it just keeps spinning with more people, but doesn't actually go anywhere. And that's effectively, the, the unfortunately, the, the economy that we've produced. Okay, yeah, thanks for that. I guess that's a bit of food for thought for the politicians. Uh, whether they take note, uh, that's up to them. Uh, we do have a couple of viewer questions here. So we've got one from RC. Uh, he's asking, uh, what will be uh, uh, the most likely shock that will force the government to change its approach? RC, that's a really good question. And um, I don't have an answer for it. I'll tell you why. Because I would have thought COVID would have been a big enough shock. I, I honestly, uh, you know, in my own naivety, I thought a year ago when COVID hit, I thought, great, this is a chance to reset the, the model. And, uh, you know, an 18 month pause on big Australia immigration uh, should have been enough to basically, you know, reevaluate the system and go, okay, how can we make this better? And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest in the outset, like I don't want people to think I'm against immigration or, and I want zero immigration. That, that's not right. I, um, basically, Australia uh, ran about 100,000 on average net overseas migration up to 2004. And, uh, and I just think we should return to basically those levels again, about 100,000 a year instead of 235,000. Um, that, that served us well uh, from the post-war years all the way up to the mid-2000s. Um, so I think that would be the best approach. Uh, that that way we can you know focus on obviously the 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 family migration which is important. Uh, for example, you know people who, who who meet a spouse overseas, they should be able to bring them into the country. That's great, uh, and also very high skilled migration. Like so, instead of this sort of lower skilled uh, migration, and, and hundred thousand will get you enough of that. Um, uh, so, uh, getting back to the question, um, I can't see a shot that that that's going to do it. I mean, hopefully there will be one, but if COVID didn't do it and COVID and we're just going to go back to business as usual after this, you know, once in a hundred year pandemic, um, I can't see what's going to make a change at, at this stage because if COVID could do it, 
what will? <laughs> um, you know, so it, it, it's it, you know, it's a crying shame that the our politicians didn't use this once in a hundred year pandemic and this freeze on borders to reevaluate the pro the, the program so that once it's resumed, it's to 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 bring it back. You know. Uh, to reform the system and make sure that it's fit for purpose going forward. Instead, we're just cutting and pasting the previous 15 years of, you know, strong immigration and we're just going to go back to it um, forever. Uh, and, you know, Sydney and, Sydney and Melbourne are going to grow to 10 million people plus by, the, by you know, 2070, which is the projection. And um, there's, there's really nothing we can do about it because the pol both all sides of politics seem to be wedded to the same model. So it's you know it's 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 really quite unfortunate, but unfortunately that's the situation I think we've got ourselves into, and um, I think politicians will take the easiest the easy solution for growth, uh, the one that gives them that you know um, the the headline announceable every quarter. You know Australia's economy grew 0.5 percent in Q1. You know it sounds good, but it's not so good if your population is growing by 0.4 percent and you basically had you know minimal per capita growth. But unfortunately, it all gets down to the fact that. Economists and Australia's media all trumpet the headline growth figure. So you'll never see an article in uh, you know the mainstream media with the headline Australia's per capita GDP growth fell point falls 0.1% in June quarter. It'll always be Australia's GDP grows 0.3%, even if the population is growing by 0.4%. So uh, unfortunately, it's biased in the way the statistics are calculated, it's biased in the media, and Unfortunately, if you set your your key performance indicators to measure the wrong thing, you're going to get the policies to support those wrong key performance indicators. And because nobody focuses on per capita outcomes, you end up with policies that don't focus on per capita outcomes when they really should. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's very insightful. Um, we've got another question from GB, sort of. Uh, address addressing what you were just talking about so he says it seems like a political problem uh would you think there's any possibility of change from within the australian political uh model or political parties i wish there was uh unfortunately i don't think there is um the reason for it is um the australian political system is effectively set up to fail in on this regard and the reason for it is that We've got these two, well, three, you know, if you leave the local governments out, we've got effectively uh, two uh, two levels of government, uh, main government. So we've got obviously the federal government and the state governments. The problem with it is the federal government collects 80% of the tax revenues and the other 20% are collected by the state and local governments. So the state governments get about 13% through their you know, narrow tax base. And what this does is it sets an incentive for the federal government to pump population growth because, because the federal government sets the federal government's in charge of immigration that that's their that that falls under their um, their responsibility and because the federal government collects 80 percent of tax revenues they they get all the benefits from growth so they get all the extra company taxes all the extra personal income taxes but the costs of growth are borne by the state and local governments who collect only 10 20 percent of the revenue so you've got this um the situation where where the incentives aren't aligned the federal government loves immigration, big immigration. They love big population growth because their revenue base goes up. And this is why you always see the Australian Treasury uh, bang on about how immigration is so good for the budget. It is. It's great for the federal budget. But they ignore the impact on the state budgets. And the way the state governments get around it is through privatisation, through toll roads, through user pays. So if you go to Sydney 20 years ago, 
Sydney had the Harbour Bridge was like one toll road, maybe one other. Now they've got about 22 toll roads. And the reason why they've got 22 toll roads is because they've had to build all this extra infrastructure to keep up with this big population growth where they've added over a million and a half people. And what that's effectively done is it's created this big pool of private taxation, um, you know, which which flows into Transurban's pocket. Um, and the, and the, state, the state government has effectively privatised the road system to a degree and it's going to get worse. Uh, and also because they can't afford to build all these roads because they don't collect enough money to keep up the population growth. So effectively, you've got the situation where we've imported all these people that we didn't necessarily need. Um, that requires a huge infrastructure build. Most of the infrastructure is built by private companies now because the state governments can't afford to build it. And then your, your rank and file citizens end up paying more in what I call private taxes, you know, toll roads, user pays, et cetera, to these privatised entities, um, which is effectively, you know, it, 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 there's, there's no difference to paying a toll to Transurban versus paying tax to the state government. It's still a tax. It's, it's, it's a private tax versus a public tax, but still it comes out of your pocket. So to cut a long story short, we've got these busted incentives where the federal government collects the benefits from big Australia population growth. The state governments and citizens bear the cost. And because of that, we, we, we just get more of the same because the federal government sets the immigration policy because it benefits them while everyone else bears the cost. And, um, you know, what, what, what I'd argue to, to break that nexus, you'd almost need the Australian Treasury or the federal government to agree that they'd pay the states 100000 per new permanent migrant to cover their infrastructure cost. And I guarantee you, if you force the, the federal government to do that, they would cut back immigration quick smart because suddenly their revenue and their costs would be aligned. And this, and, and But, you know, it won't happen. So because of the way the whole system's set up, uh, we're going to keep getting this, uh, this policy. And it's also the way, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, when... when when you have think tanks like the Grattan Institute, et cetera, always go on about how great immigration is for the budget. It's because they only look at the federal budget. They don't look at the costs on state budgets or the costs on individuals having to pay all these tolls and stuff, which they never used to have to pay before we pursued this policy. Um, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very insightful. Um, and so RC, he's asked another question. Uh, so is there a way that individuals can sort of push back against the uh, that big uh, big Australian narrative? Because uh, he, he says it seems sort of impossible for the average taxpayer. Yeah, look, it, it is very hard. The, the, the way I suggest you do it is to vote for anybody. Uh, you know, basically, don't, don't vote for the major parties. And I, and I include the Greens in that because Labor, Liberal, Greens are all on it basically on a uni ticket, you know, give or take small differences. They're effectively all support big Australia uh, immigration. So, you know, if you want it to change, you've got to support other parties like Sustainable Australia or, um, you know, that, or, or yeah, independence, et cetera. Like I, I'm, I'm a big believer in um, the best sort of government is a hung parliament. Um, you know, you want to keep the, as I say, keep the bastards on us. And, and, and the way to do that is don't like send a protest vote to the major parties, put them last on your ballot papers, vote for anybody else first. And uh, who knows, if enough people do it, we might eventually get change. But unfortunately, you know, I've become pretty cynical. That's why I've lost my hair. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I guess I've been doing this long enough now, uh, been tracking this long enough to know sort of how the sausage is made. And unfortunately, our governments are pulled by what I call the growth lobby. So that's your big business, 
your, your property industry and now a new entrance to the growth lobby is your education slash migration industry. So your universities, et cetera. And they all gain from, you know, basically importing more people because they privatise the gains. And, um, you know, uh, through, uh, you know, if you think about it from, from uh, the business lobby's perspective, having easy access to big migrations is a no-brainer. Like they get a bigger customer base to sell to at the same time as their wage, cross, uh, their, their wage costs um, fall because they've got a bigger pool of people to employ and more competition, you know, for, for, um, for, for, for jobs. And then also big business property lobby and, you know, I guess people call them the elites, own most of the land and capital in the country. So, you know, more people inflates those, uh, the value of capital. So they get richer from that as well. So, you know, for, if, if you're part of the business lobby or the property lobby, it's a win-win-win and they get to privatise the gains. Um, but unfortunately, the costs are borne by just, you know, the everyday, everyday Joe Vlog Australian who has to now live in an apartment instead of a house, spends more time stuck in traffic, can't get a seat on the train, um, you know, has to now pay for water, desalinated water because there's too many people, you know, drinking on, uh, sucking on Australia's finite amount of water supplies, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that's just the way it is. Uh, uh, politicians' strings are pulled by the growth lobby. And they don't represent us, unfortunately. And they should, because we're, we're we're the ones who vote and we're their constituents. But unfortunately, it's the lobbyists who uh, who, who pull the strings. Um, not just here, you know, across all developed countries now. Like, lobbyists are huge in the US, they're huge in Canada, they're huge in you know, New Zealand, everywhere. Um, it's the same story across the world. Unfortunately, I don't know if it's because of big tech and it's because we've got a lot more billionaires who start up think tanks, et cetera. But it's, it's, it's effectively... Um, you know, political uh, politicians across the world now have been more influenced by uh, vested interests and politicians, it seems, uh, sorry, uh, lobbyists, it seems, than, than ever before. And Australia is certainly no different. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I hope that answers your question, RC. Uh, we've got one, one other question here from Jacob. Um, so in the context of uh, this big Australia, what we've been talking about, Leith, what are your thoughts on the value of the Aussie dollar relative to the US uh, in the short term and then sort of in the longer term as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think in the in the short term, Australia's, Australia's, the, the Australian dollar should probably fall because um, I base that on, on the interest rate differential. Um, so it looks like the US is going to is going to ease off its quantitative easing and uh, probably going to you know, raise rates quicker than us. So the 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 US dollar, sorry, the uh, the interest rate differential between us and, and the US will probably uh, um, change. So the US rates will go up, ours will stay, you know, roughly the same. Uh, and and that, that should mean that the US dollar goes up uh, versus us. Um, could very well be wrong. Um, at the same time, the Australian, the Australian dollar is also influenced quite heavily by commodities. So the commodity prices are crashing. Uh, iron ore prices, you know, halved from what it was a few months ago. Uh, was trading about 230 to 240 bucks. Now it's about 110, I think. Um, so because of that, the Australian dollar typically follows commodity prices. And if commodity prices crash, the Australian dollar typically falls. There are other influences. Uh, longer term, man, that's a good question. Um, I tend to not make forecasts nowadays because I'm usually wrong uh, on, on like things like, uh, you know, market stuff, uh, be it house prices, whatever. Um, you know, it, it's almost pointless to look at it longer term. Um, 
But I guess that being said, if Australia is going to remain so uncompetitive and it's going to, uh, you know, it's going to keep uh, running these failed policies, well, that should net net be, be I guess, negative for the Australian dollar over the long run um, as we become, uh, you know, less competitive against against these other countries. Um, but that's just a guess. Look, I, I really don't know. Uh, it'd be probably better to ask that for Dave Lewin Smith. Dave, Dave Lewin Smith um, follows the Australian dollar, you know, every day he writes about on his on, on macro business. I tend to follow, you know, the, the real economy more and, and the housing market, et cetera. So I don't really pay that much close attention to it, I'll be honest. Um, but unfortunately, Dave's on holidays. So maybe, maybe put a pin in that one for the new year because Dave, uh, Dave follows the Aussie dollar like a walk. Um, you know, it's one of the, it's one of his key things he follows. I, I don't, I pretty much just read his stuff and and, and try not to think too much about it because I've got too many other things to think about. <laughs> it's okay, I, yeah. I, I, honestly, yeah. The the, the way um, nucleus wealth works and macro business is effectively. I look my my main um, my main area I look at is you know domestic. So I look at the Australian economy, Australian property market, Australian policy matters. Dave focus on markets, which obviously encompasses, you know, uh, dollar differentials and that sort of stuff. So we're effectively split in two. Um, my focus is domestic policy economy, mostly, and housing market. Dave's is, uh, you know, um, global and markets. So that's sort of how we split our skills because there really just isn't enough hours in the day to focus on everything. And, and, and you, can, you know, you can't spread yourself too thin. Um, you know, we're already spread pretty thin and we follow huge amounts of areas each. So. But that's why I'm sort of talking on, uh, you know, talking about a topic that Dave's an expert in, not me. Okay. Um, yeah, that's great. That's a, that's a good answer. Uh, so, uh, yeah, have you got uh, – oh, now, now we're actually going to have the uh, viewer question of the week. Uh, so this is for viewers to drop their comments and have some discussion over the coming week. Uh, so question for this week is, do you think there'll be another lost decade? Uh, so feel free to do that any time over the coming week and engage with the other uh, with some of the other viewers. Um, so Leith, have you got any any final thoughts? Any anything uh, you want to leave us with? Yeah, not really. I just want everyone to um, to obviously have a you know very safe Christmas and a good break. Um, you know, obviously, well while while I'm uh, I wrote this report up last week, right? So and, and even since then. Um, Obviously, a week ago, this whole Omicron virus thing uh, hadn't hadn't uh, wasn't getting out of control like it is now. So it could be that you know, um, in a few months' time, it could be back in lockdown. Who knows? And and or you know, heavy restrictions. And my uh, prediction of a twenty twenty two boom could already be shot. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, but 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 obviously, you know, you, you you just make the best guesses on what you have at the time. I sort of assumed in that report that. There won't be further lockdowns, um, which seemed like a reasonable bet a week or so ago when I was writing it up. But um, you know, who knows? So we've already seen the Netherlands go back into lockdown. Europe, Europe started to uh, incre increase restrictions. Um, so you've always got to read. So anybody who bothers to read the report, uh, just read it with that that in mind. Um, you know, any any predictions like that on what's going to happen next year could it could easily be blown out of the water. You know. Uh, in, in a month's time, if um, if the situation with uh, with the virus changes and it ends up being more deadly than it seems, uh, we just don't know. So we are we are dealing, as has been the case in the last eighteen months, we're dealing with a lot of unknowns. 
and it's a very fluid situation. So um, it's best to read it in that light. Uh, but apart from that, everyone stay safe, uh, especially if you're in uh, in Sydney and uh, or in New South Wales and Victoria where the virus is exploding. Uh, you know, take it easy out there. Be safe on the roads. Enjoy your break. Uh, enjoy the Boxing Day test and the New Year's test. And uh, and we'll see you next year. Um, and 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 thanks very much for listening to these these uh, these podcasts week and week and reading our material. We uh, we really appreciate it. Um, you know, you really power power us and uh and and you know it's it's why we do the things we do because it's um you know we enjoy it for one and b it's uh you know it's great to it's great to obviously um you know have an audience and and liaise with everyone whether it's on uh, on macro business or nucleus well said leith um yeah that almost wraps us up uh so yeah just want to say thanks for joining us today leith wish you a merry christmas and uh, and a well-deserved break yeah, thanks very much, Sam. You too. Excellent. Yeah, always uh, always interesting. Lots of great insights there. Uh, so we do welcome your feedback on the show, uh, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. Uh, if you do have any ideas, please uh, drop it in the YouTube comments section below, or alternatively, you can send us an email at contact at nucleuswealth.com. Uh, just a reminder, this is general advice and doesn't take into account your personal situation. Uh, if you do want to discuss how you can personally take advantage of these uh, macroeconomic trends, uh, please go to our website, uh, nucleuswealth.com, and you can book a, book a call with myself or the team. Just want to say uh, thanks again to everyone who's watched this episode live and to all those people that have asked questions along the way or watched the replay. Don't forget to like the video now. And finally, if you know of anyone that might get something out of today's video, I uh, would appreciate it if you share it with them. Uh, if you'd like to see uh, some more of our previous episodes or content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content. And to stay up to date with news from us, you can uh, also follow us on all major social media platforms. Uh, so we will have a couple more episodes uh, over the holiday break. We'll have a bit of a... Um, We've got a couple of pre-records coming up. Uh, so if you don't get a chance to tune in, uh, for myself, Leith, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, we just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Uh, stay safe. Enjoy the festive period. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks and bye for now.